Gothic, you're curious about Gothic art in our time. Duluth Fraternity. Uh, I don't know what the Duluth Fraternity... I guess, oh yes, members of a Minnesota University Duluth Fraternity arrived at St. Paul, Minnesota with an empty beer keg, which they rolled 150 miles from Duluth. The Phi Beta Chi chapter hailed the feat as a world's record. And uh, we'd like to salute uh, these people because, uh, after all... uh, Sports is an important part of our world, and this kind of world record cannot go unnoticed. It's the very day that a man sets a world record. The Guinness Book of World Records lists 101 miles as the longest distance that a beer keg had been rolled. That was the old record, and they broke it by a good 49 miles. And so, please, if you will, we'd like to salute that group of brave, hardy souls, part of our time, and uh, you just get it started. You don't have to cue it up. Just let it go, please. Well, that's too bad. Thank you. Here we go. And so, tonight, we'd like to salute. Yes, sir. Me, Oh, I the car. Forever, ever, ever. Stalwart, honest, and sober, and... Well, I don't know about that. It was an empty beer keg. And so we salute you tonight. Yes, indeed. Uh, and so you have you have both the, uh, you know, both of them going on at the same time. And both, what do you mean, both the worlds? Now, a lot of people would have you believe, you know, that on one hand you hear, oh boy, all you know, colleges are all very serious today. Everybody's deeply concerned, <laughs> and uh, and you know, none of that stuff like swallowing goldfish and that stuff that doesn't go on anymore. And here. At the University of Minnesota at Duluth, they just rolled an empty beer keg 150 miles. You know, you don't, you don't do that just, you know, on a whim. You know, sit around, hey, let's roll a beer keg to St. Paul. You know, you, it takes a little planning. And, uh, you know, it takes uh, malice aforethought, actually. And uh, so that's uh, that's one side. It's still going on. Uh, of course, that's all by the 
problems of the world today. We're all, you know, we're all involved in these, uh, these little, excuse me here. Got to bring my temple bells out here. Once in a while when things get difficult here, I bring the temple. Oh, another gun. Damn temple bells. All right, there goes my knee again. Hello, hello. Okay. Yeah, I'll just tell you about that in case you're wondering what the, the whole problem. Hey, incidentally, speaking of temple bells, did you hear about what happened in Holland the other day? What happened in Holland? Nothing. That's a very dull country. I, I've been there, and they just, you know, sit around and chew tobacco and eat ham and drink. Uh, but actually, something did happen in Holland. The railroad personnel on cops and everybody else had to be called to the scene to control a gigantic crowd where there was a derailed freight train. You know, millions of Dutchmen arrived, you know, with wooden shoes clanking and walking around. No one was hurt, but thousands of people gathered when it was discovered that when they had this accident, this big wreck, that the train was carrying scrap waste paper. And it was made up entirely of sex and nudist magazines. <laughs> I'll tell you, if it, the world is, I'm serious, the world is, the world is more like some kind of insane uh, bad comedy than anything. So did you hear, speaking of uh, bad scenes, and uh, did you remember Mr. Hulot's Holiday? That's probably the funniest movie ever made. You ever see that? It was great. I, I liked that opening scene where people kept running back and forth, you know, from the train station. And uh, I thought, you know, there's so many undercurrents. and I, I didn't understand any of the undercurrents. You must understand that, that I don't understand any subtlety that is involved in any work of art. Oh, no, I, I, I totally agree with that uh, chick who, you know, said that uh, Moby Dick was about this whale. And, you know, if you like fishing, it's you know, a pretty good story. But uh, I agree that uh, <laughs> I don't see any of the undercurrents. I'm just trying out here your high range there. Would you please turn up your tweeters, friends? Uh, do, you ever, do you get a little embarrassing? You're a little embarrassed when you use the word tweeter. <laughs> so it's like something that would be very popular down on Greenwich Avenue. You'll have to think about that one. And I realize, of course, that in this day of the one-liner, thinking is a difficult thing to do. So, uh, turn up your tweeters. Thank God, listen to them highs. I'll tell you, we're going to knock us right off the air. Uh, tonight, uh, as, I, as I warned you, this, the program is entirely for people with uh, totally adult taste. And uh, among other things, it's uh, becoming quite evident to me that the people with total musical sophistication, and there aren't many of those, uh, would you please get ready with the first one there, the first outrage, uh, that uh, tonight's uh, list of favorite outrages, that the people with uh, total musical sophistication almost invariably realize that the Jews harp is a difficult instrument to play, that many are called and damn few are chosen. As a matter of fact, I received a letter the other day from a guy who says, did you see that uh, horrible abortion on television recently? They did a big folk rock thing, say. And he said some guy had the temerity to get up and play 30 seconds of Jews harp, and he said it was so terrible it sounded like my Aunt Clara playing on her, her store teeth. He says, terrible. He says, I have heard the master. And he said, I finally realize, and I defer to you, that you are truly that. Would you please? Play, hit it big there. That's it. Here we go now. I'll show you how this little bit should be played. I right, just say, here we go. Cha 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 cha. Right. 
Okay, thank you. Stop, I said. Cut it out. <laughs> now, reset that there. We may need that later on. I just thought you... I don't know that... Uh, I'm, not, I'm not bowing, I'm telling you. I refuse to bow to popular sentiment. And the popular... The, the, the school of... Uh, there's two distinct schools of thought in uh, my... You know, my vast throng of listeners. And one is, Shepard, will you please stop playing that Hogan twanger? And uh, the other school of thought is, Shepard, will you stop talking and making all them inane statements and only play the thing which you can really play, which is that Hogan twanger? So I'm not bowing to either side. I stand alone and rampant. Let's see, speaking of rampant here, yes. Uh, Let me know when you have that reset in there. Okay? But remember what Freud said, you know. Oh, what the hell did he say? Let's see here. Right on the tip of my tongue. No, no. That was silly. It was Earl Wilson that said that. Uh, I keep, you know, confusing the two. There are many Freudian overtones in Earl Wilson's cow, if you've read it carefully. <laughs> you don't even have to read it so carefully. It sticks out all over. Yeah, Kambala. But uh, while we... Oh, that's an old Egyptian word. Terrible word, too. Well, what we were saying here, however, was that Freud did say, unless I'm grossly uh, overestimating Freud or grossly underestimating my memory, uh, what Freud did say one time when he, you know, he, was, he came into this meeting of these uh, big famous crowd of followers. See, when, when you're a Freudian, you're not really a scientist, you're a follower. Uh, you know, it's, it's like any other kind of religious movement. And, and uh, nevertheless, he, he, he was... Uh, he was talking to this crowd of followers, see, and Freud was a, you know, was a fanatical cigar smoker. And Freud showed up with this cigar, see, and he looked at this crowd, he said, well, gentlemen, and they all looked, you know, immediately being uh, totally symbol-oriented, you know. He says, uh, gentlemen, we wish to also point out that it is a, in addition, it is a damn good cigar. <laughs> That's true. You know, uh... <laughs> That's, you know, that's the trouble when you get totally symbol-oriented. You fail to see the reality of many things. You only see symbols and stuff. And, uh, you know, there can be no such thing as a good, honest fist fight. It becomes a symbol of Western civilization in the decline. You know, it can't be two guys just arguing over who, you know, gets the pickle lily first. And so, uh, <laughs> ultimately, ultimately, you know, this is the problem that happens in any great religious movement. They wind up getting hung on their own religion as opposed to what the religion was originally about. You know, it's like guys counting the angels at, on the head of a pin and all that jazz. But, uh, by the way, you know, I think that's as good a way as any to spend your life. I don't put anything down with that. You know, one time I counted over 722 angels on the head of a pin. Then I got a headache and had to stop. But before that, it was kind of exciting. I mean, you know, because angels come in many sizes. But, you know, speaking of, uh, of uh, counting things... You know, there's, there's so many so many things that are, are sort of, uh, you might say, symbolic truisms that nobody ever actually sees happen. I've been going to baseball games since I was old, maybe eight months old. In fact, there's a genuine uh, myth in our family. I'm not sure it's a myth. That one of the reasons why I am the way I am was that uh, exactly six and a half months before I was born, which is a crucial time in the prenatal life, 
but exactly six and a half months before I was born, my old man and my mother attended a Chicago White Sox doubleheader, and they were playing the Browns. And, uh, of course, this is a, you know, a symphony of defeat. I mean, if uh, any of you know anything about it. Of course, you know, you know the Chicago White Sox today. If you guys think you got bad news because, you know, the, the Jets have lost a couple of games, you know, and everybody's already thrown in the ring, the hat and all that. So, uh, you know, if you think you got it bad, how would you like to have a team that's been, like, say, playing in the American League for, well, well, since the beginning of the American League, you know, the White Sox are one of the first teams in the American League. They go back to, oh, 1712 or something like that. How would you like to have a team that's an old established team that is running 10 games behind the newest expansion team? I mean, that's made up of a bunch of little leaguers and three old ladies who are dressing up in drag in the outfield, you know? And and this is this is what <laughs> what they're contending with in Chicago. So anyway, uh, at one time, for those of you that are historically minded, and I'm sure that many of you are, <laughs> uh, but uh, at one time uh, in the in, you know in the real history, you know, there's uh, you ever hear the term real politic? You didn't. Well, that kills my whole show for tonight. I suppose I might as well tell you some old Henny Youngman jokes, of which, of course, there are no other kind. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know. Assuming that there's new Henny Youngman jokes, but uh, nevertheless, uh, <laughs> you know it's funny. I've, I've I've actually run into people who find Rodney Dangerfield humorous, which uh, you know kind of confuses me. And uh, I've even actually run into people who laugh at Phyllis Diller. Well, of course, these are the same kind of people that laugh at rubber crutches in a windstorm. And uh, <laughs> yeah, right, George. But the, you know the side just did. But uh, nevertheless. Uh, Getting back to real politic, I mean, in case you don't know what real politic is, I suggest you look it up. You'll find it in the, you know, the American Dictionary of Slang and Idiosyncratic Usage. And uh, how'd you like that for an idea for a book right there? But uh, nevertheless, uh, real politic means real politic as opposed to, you know, theoretical politics. It's, you know, what actually happens as opposed to, you know, great theories. So, you know, a vast theory will be formed based entirely upon a concept of the, you know, the, the beautiful working classes versus the evil oppressors. And, you know, that sounds great. sounds groovy. Until you discover suddenly that the working classes are the oppressors and there ain't no other class, you know, and the whole thing falls down into a mess, you know, and winds up with Jimmy Hoffa hitting you on the head with a wet salami and everything else. And so, you know, that's, that's real politic. In other words, the real thing as opposed to what uh, we like to think it is. Hello, test. Hello, 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 test. <laughs> uh, George is still working, isn't it? Uh, <laughs> you wouldn't believe that we got our transmitter from Sears Roebuck. Came in a kit. Okay, this is it. This is W-O-R, New York. I repeat, W-O-R, New York. You have no idea what that stands for. <laughs> W-O-R, New York. And now, hit the money button. Coming through, Chrysler's and Plymouth's for 72. Cricket, Duster, Scamp, Satellite, Fury, Chrysler, Imperial. All built to last and beautiful too. The kinds of cars America wants today. Now at America's number one Chrysler Plymouth dealers. You have made us first place dealers throughout all the USA. Cause in Chrysler, Plymouth sales, we lead the way. With our guys, you'll be a winner, number one in every way. That's the kind of dealer America wants today. 
See America's number one Chrysler Plymouth dealers. Your Chrysler Plymouth dealers of New York, New Jersey, and Fairfield County. Act now while the price freeze is still on. Hey, have you noticed that every uh, one of the great the developments of our time is uh, Detroit has apparently discovered that little cars are, you know, are uh, go, you know. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how, how we keep repeating the same discoveries over and over again? Like, for example, the, uh, the, uh, the movie industry has discovered now that you don't have to spend a million dollars and, uh, you know, get... Barbara Streisand and Julie Andrews and Rex Harrison to make a successful movie. You know, it makes dough. That's called the easy rider syndrome. And just ten years ago, they were all discovering that again with Marty. Remember Marty? That was, you don't remember Marty? Well, I don't suppose you remember last Wednesday either, so that, that's no, that doesn't cut any ice, you know. <laughs> you know, there's, there's a whole new, there's a whole new uh, thing about memory, you know. People today are ashamed to have one. Oh, yes. Oh, very much so. Because if you have a memory, you're admitting that time has passed for you. And that's, uh, that's really in direct opposition to a now person to whom time does not exist. It is only now that exists. So if you admit that you remember 1968 quite clearly, you are conceding something. Already, I, guys are looking at me right flat in the eye and says, what do you mean, Woodstock what? Who, where? I said, Woodstock, don't you remember Woodstock? Woodstock, Woodstock, isn't that some little uh, town someplace? Uh, I heard of it somewhere. And, you know, they, they don't remember. I mean, uh, <laughs> well, because once you admit you have a memory, you're admitting also you're not a total now person. I mean, if you can actually remember the Peppermint Lounge, forget it, Phil. I mean, you know. In fact, I already forgot the electric circus. You well, know, I, I, I don't remember it. I refuse to remember it. Anybody that tries to pretend I remember it is a fink. No, 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 wait a minute. I don't even know that word. That's an old word. I don't use the word fink. I don't know that word. Who, who, who's throwing these bad words in my head here? They're not my words. Breslin. I don't remember Breslin. Who the hell is Breslin? What is this? I mean, it's, I'm looking at old notes left over from an old Lyle Van script here. The human side of the news. I'd like to hear the other side once, you know. There must be another side. I mean, if there's the human side, there has to be the other side. I mean, uh, plus does not exist without minus. Of course, this is abstract, isn't it again? All right, <laughs> George. <laughs> Heaven's sakes. Like, uh, <laughs> like I received a letter from this angry type, you know, and he said, he says, what is it? What are you talking about, Shepard? What are you, an apologist for the other side? What do you mean? I've never, you know, I've, no, no side has asked me to join yet. I'm waiting for somebody to ask me, you know. Says, what are you, apologist? And I and uh, I couldn't figure out what he meant. Then I then I read in his letter a little further. He goes on to say, he says, uh, there's only only one way to get everything solved today, and that's violence. He says we've been forced into violence. He says because we very uh, intelligently explained our position, and they refused to to listen, and so now we have to resort to violence. I says, well, you know, I was thinking about that. I says, in other words. Uh, implied in the letter is the total belief that your position is the only right one. And that anyone who argues with you is either uh, some kind of a warmonger, or he likes to burn babies with napalm, or, uh, you know, he's <laughs> some, kind of some kind of a fink of some kind. I mean, obviously it can't conceivably be that there are two sides to an argument. I mean, and both are equally logical. Just different. Shepard, you're again an apologist. 
What are you doing? Apologizing for reason, that's what. You have to today, really. You have to apologize for logic. You have to say, well, I hate to bring this up, Fred, but, you know, uh, there is such a thing as the law of gravity and... Uh, and, uh, oh, what do you think? What's the matter with you? What, an obstructionist? Yes, that's true. There are many things that are obstructionists. Forces in this world like wind and sails, sand and pebbles, just will not listen to your argument. And it's a well-thought-out logical argument, right, friends? You use nothing but logic. <laughs> Incidentally, may I uh, take this moment to celebrate a great American uh, who lives in Centerline, Michigan. How would you like to live in Centerline, Michigan? You know what that's named at? It's the center line of the highway. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not inventing. It's Centerline, Michigan. You know? And, you know, there actually is a resume speed Montana. I'm not kidding. There is a resume speed Montana. And the reason that, uh, you know, that they, they call it resume speed is, so, you know, a guy started a gas station next to this sign, and that said resume speed. And somebody moved next door to it, next thing you know, the, you know, there's 428 people living there, and there was only one sign in town on the road that said resume speed. So they got a post office, and that was it. So uh, <laughs> if you're curious, you know, there's also probably soft shoulders in Indiana. But nevertheless, center line Michigan. And I say here's a man who takes, you know, takes crime out of the, out of the realm of, you know, just plain ordinary rottenness. And he makes it into something else. An annual car thief who likes to trade up while avoiding model price increases has struck again. Police said, and we quote, a pleasant-looking, conservatively dressed man visited the showroom at Roger Rinky Cadillac several times last week accompanied by a dignified-looking woman and a small boy. He admired the $5,800 Eldorado model and asked if he could take it for a spin, you know, to just try it out. Well, they were more than happy to let them test drive it, Detective Gary Houghton said. He looked so nice. Nobody thought to get his name. <laughs> Do I have to tell you what happened? <laughs> yeah, well, he didn't come back, but he did leave a trade-in. He left behind a Ford Thunderbird. <laughs> You'll have to park there, saying it never showed up. And by the way, they traced the Thunderbird to Jim Turner Ford in Troy, where he'd picked that one up. The test drive trader drove the T-Bird a year ago. You know, he came into this T-Bird joint when he left behind in the T-Bird place a 1968 Chevy that had been stolen in a similar manner from a Royal Oak, Michigan dealer a year before that. They probably traced this guy all the way back to a 1936 Essex. You know. <laughs> anyway, he drove off uh, in a year-long test drive. By the way, when he, he once was apprehended, he said he was still testing it, and uh, he'd been driving it for years. They want to make sure, you know, he wants to make sure, make sure it holds up good. You know, that's an important part of a car. And uh, they traced him all the way back to a 1967 Ford. <laughs> and uh, they haven't, uh, he's gone up. You see, I like that. There's a guy that, you know, is mobile upward. And he started with a 67 Ford. Incidentally, he started with the straight, the conservative model Ford. It was the low price model that year. And now he's working on Eldorado Cadillacs. God knows where you go from there. All I got to say is any of you foreign car dealers out there in, in Michigan, be careful of any of your Ferraris or Aston Martins, you know. <laughs> in fact, you know, speaking of that, I might as well tell you a bad story. 
See, no, no. And I, I, uh, there are times, you know, when, when you, you know, you just tell a story, and other times when you, when you start laying it down for what it's worth. But uh, I'm, you know, at one point in my checkered past, I was involved in an automobile dealership, and uh, you know, that's a, that's a. You know, most of you people know about, you know, automobile selling and buying from only the standpoint of the guy who's, you know, going in to buy a car. He's going in and maybe wants to steal a hubcap or something. But nevertheless, oh, yeah, you'd be surprised, you know, that uh, when you run an automobile showroom, you know what you got to do. I mean, you may, it, it's fantastic. It's, it's, it's like, it's like uh, the whole world is made up of some kind of vulture. Uh, it's like everybody's a vulture. You'd be amazed. Do you know that one time in our in our showroom, now we sold foreign cars, you know. Now, for those of you who don't know much about foreign cars, to begin with, uh, many of the foreign cars you have to have special tools, you know, to, to work on them. You, you understand that, right? In other words, you have to have special screwdrivers. They have a special set of uh, wrenches and stuff because it's of the European sizes, you know. So anyway, um, one day the the we had the showroom scene. It's a beautiful residential part of Cincinnati. And, and all these nice people would come in, and these are really expensive, you know, groovy cars. They're like XKs, and and uh, you have a few little bippies like that. We had the, um, an M4 Aston on the floor, and a couple of nice machines, you know. And uh, one day, this guy comes in, he says, he a real funny look on his face. He was one of the salesmen. He says, hey, he says, what am I going to do? And I said, what? And he says, well, he says, see that lady out there? And sure enough, there's a nice lady. And uh, she's uh, maybe 65 years old. She's puttering around. She's wearing a flowered print dress. And I said, what about her? He said, well, in her shopping bag is a four-barrel carburetor off that XK. I said, what? He said, yeah. He said, she just took it off. I said, what the hell? What's she going to do with a carburetor? He said, I don't know. I don't know. Maybe she's, you know, maybe she competes. Maybe she's, a, you know... Maybe she does a little racing on the side. And so we didn't know what to do. Here she's still standing around out there, you know, looking real pleasant and, you know, looking at the, oh, those are very nice seats. Is that real leather? You know, that kind of stuff. And here she's got in her shopping bag a four-barrel carburetor from an XK. In case you're curious, it was the XK140 MC. Uh, you know, I'll get technical with you there. And it was, you know, it was a lot of machine, not a lot of carburetor. I don't know whether you know anything about how much a carburetor for a, an XK150MC goes for, but let's put it this way. It goes for more than the average paperweight. And uh, she has taken it off. Now, first of all, it requires a separate set of wrenches to do that. You don't just reach in and pluck it, you know, like you're picking a dandelion. And and we couldn't figure out how the hell the old doll did it. See, that, that's what got... First of all, the mechanic come out, and he says, you know, it takes me like two and a half hours to take one of them off. He said, I want to know how she did it. He said, maybe she can do something about, you know, <laughs> stepping up our work efficiency back in the garage. <laughs> so we didn't know what to do. Well, I'm telling you, this is a true story. Now, if you think I'm making this up, friend, you'll find it on a police blotter. So we didn't know what, what to do. You know, she's got this carburetor in her shopping bag. So I turned to the guy, the other guy, a friend of mine, the office. What do you, what, what do you think we ought to do, Jack? He said, well, I know what I'm going to do. And he picked up the phone, and he called the cops, see? And he said, uh, he called his number, and he said, listen, he said, we got a very strange thing. And the cop says, go ahead, I'm used to strange things. <laughs> and if there's anything a cop is used to, it's that. He said, what is it this time? He says, listen, there's a lady in our showroom who's got the carburetor from an XK150MC Jaguar in her shopping bag. 
and uh, she's just about to leave, I think. What are we going to do? He says, all right. You know, figuring there's, you know, a couple of kooks on the phone. He says, what's your address? We tell him. And instantly, just like that zap, you know, they had this radio car, and these two guys pull up out in front. And the old lady, see, she's still putzing around. That Now she's looking at the, at the Aston Martin, and God knows what she's got in mind for that one, see. So she's walking around, and these two guys casually walk up, see. Two, you know, real, real on top of it looking cops, see. One guy, kind of a tired looking veteran, you know. He looks right out of a Jack Webb script, see. And the other guy's the, is this bright eyed rookie, see. And the tired looking veteran, he has seen it all, you know. Have you notice that cops have a funny look around the eyes? Man, when you've seen as much as the average cop has seen, it is very hard to believe in the Norman Rockwell paintings. Very difficult, to, you know, to buy Walt Disney films and Doris Day movies and stuff. See, so the cop walks in, very, you know, the tired-looking veteran, and with him is this bright-eyed rookie, you know, with a bushy tail and all that, in this brand new uniform. They walk in, and uh, they one of them stands by the door. See, and uh, the the rookie stands by the door, and the the very hip-looking cop, the older guy, he comes walking back. He makes, you know, he's making sounds like uh, he's not there for anything except maybe a glass of water, maybe a little shakedown or something, you know. And uh, he comes walking in, he says, uh, hi, fellas, how's it going today? Gee whiz, it's hot out. Oh, wow. Is that the old doll? I says, hey, that's the old doll. He says, XK, you say, it's an XK 140, uh, 150, MC, carburetor? Hmm. How the hell is she getting off? I said, I don't know. Ask her. Don't ask me. She's got it. He said, all right. So he walks over casually to her seat. I see her. She turns around, and here's this big cop. And uh, he says a few very quiet words. And apparently this old gal had been picked up 5,000 times for everything. See? He says a few quiet words to her. Doesn't change the expression a bit. She just turns around and, like, sticks out her arm, says, you know, okay, let's go. Where's the wagon? And uh, <laughs> so he takes her outside on the street. See? And uh, now, by this time, there's four or five other people in the showroom, and nobody was aware of it. You know, they're just walking around. And uh, this all happened so neatly. It was it's so beautifully done with such nice taste, see? And so the young cop comes back in. And he's got the shopping bag. See, now they got, uh, you know, a little old lady. She's sitting in the back of the of the wagon now. It's actually, it was just the squad car. See, they got in the back there. And she's pretending she played the game, too. So she, you know, she was having a touch of heat. And uh, the police are giving her, you know, a little uh, help there. They're going to take her home now. And she's sitting back there with a fan, see. And uh, the, the big cop is sitting in the front, the old guy. You know, he's talking to her. You know, they're two old campaigners, you know, the... This lady kleptomaniac and the cop, you know, they, they've gone many rounds together. So they, the, <laughs> the young cop comes back in, and he's got the shopping bag, see, and he, he walks back to the office, and he takes out this carburetor. And there it was, you know, that she, she, she was not only, she was really good at it, see. She even stole the gaskets and stuff to go with it, see. He was not a sloppy one. She, she, you can just see her coming back to the fence, you know, with this thing. And the fence says, where are the, where are the gaskets? What are you, you, you going to do with a carburetor? What are the nuts for it, huh? And she's got it all there, see? So he says, hi. He says, man. And, and he had this stunned look on his face. This young cop, it's the first time he's run into this kind of stuff, see? He always thought little old ladies were nice. And, you know, they didn't do stuff like that. And uh, he says, 
How? He said, how'd she get it off? I says, well, look, friend, why don't you go and ask her? That's what we're asking. You know, we're interested. I'll bet if you look through that bag, you'll find all kinds of interesting tools and stuff. You know, either that or it's strapped to her girdle. I don't know, you know. And so he says, oh, man, he says, you don't mind if we take this for evidence. They won't believe this back at the station. I say, you kidding? They won't believe it? Come on, friend. And so with that, he goes back into the car and they drive off. Incidentally, we never got the carburetor back, in case you're curious. Somebody at the station probably put the, put the finger on that. But the <laughs> so you want to hear another story about fantastic theft? Uh, uh, you, you run into this all the time. Like, like one day, and this is, why, this is why car dealers, are you curious why car dealers also have got a sad look around the eye? You know, everybody believes that you know, car dealers are these sharks. Well, I want to tell you, that they get, they get that look because of what happens to them all the time. For example, uh, we, got, we got this new car in. Now, this is a brand-new car, fantastic car, a Mercedes, as a matter of fact. It was ordered on a, on a, uh, for a special order for customers, see, and, uh, and they had to go through all kinds of special uh, uh, import stuff and so on. And anyway, this fantastic Mercedes arrives. And uh, take it off the truck, and then in the in the showroom it comes, you know. And here it is, and they bring it back into the into the uh, back uh, the garage back there, and they're servicing it, you know, getting it ready because brand new car, it's saying, fantastic car, and you know what a you know what a tremendous uh, like uh, more you know a 310 SE Mercedes goes for, you know, this is real cabbage, see. So the car is back there and beautiful, and we're back there examining it, looking at it, a great looking car, and so. The the uh, mechanic he goes over it and goes over the checklist. Everything checks out great. See, so uh, the car goes out. The customer comes in. He's the uh, uh, elegant uh, gentleman ordered this car and and uh, he you know he's delighted that the car come in and here it is this tremendous ten thousand dollar investment and he drives out with it. Well, he brings it back about three days later and he says, yeah, it's funny. He says this car, I I uh, you know I drove a car like this in Europe and it just doesn't ride right. Uh, it just doesn't feel right. And uh, so the mechanic says, gee, I don't know. It's a, you know. We'll take a look at it. So we put it on the lift, and up it goes. And so the mechanic is walking around. This is a real fine foreign car mechanic. See? He's walking around. He says, yeah, yeah. Huh. He said, uh, hey, uh, can I talk to you for a minute? He comes back to me. He says, come here. He says, I want to tell you something. So we go in the office away from the customer, and I said, what's the matter? He says, somebody stole all the shock absorbers. He says, the shocks and everything. He says, have been taken off. That All the Mercedes shocks are gone. And he says, somebody put like 1953 Studebaker shocks in that thing. I said, what? He says, yeah. He says, I don't know. Somebody stole all the shocks off the car. I said, somebody stole the shocks. It was, you know. <laughs> well, anyway, it boils down to the fact that somebody along the line where that car was being shipped somewhere, someplace, Somebody saw that Mercedes, you know, was in a in a warehouse or something, and they got in at night, and they literally stole parts off the car and put fake parts back on them that looked, you know, you know they passed, they were new ones, <laughs> new parts, but I mean, like like seven hundred percent less uh, quality, and so here we are. Well, guess who had to make good on that? That's right. I mean, it's very hard to explain to the customer that you got a new Mercedes and it's got 1953 Studebaker shocks in it, and they all come through that way, you know. It's very hard to explain that. So we wound up putting all this stuff in there, you know. So down the drain goes all our profit from the little deal and the whole bit, and he drives out, and he says, oh, it drives great now. Whatever you guys do, we never told him, you know. 
says, whatever you guys did, it's terrific. And he kept calling up. He says, gee, that's great. Listen, I got a friend who's got a Mercedes, the same problem. And I'll forget it. <laughs> I bet a lot of guys are sitting out there real worried now, thinking, holy smoke. <laughs> when you run into stuff like, you know, incredible stuff. Now, I'm going to tell you another one. Speaking of great thefts, uh, sneaky thefts, you know, the kind of stuff that really makes you, really makes you, uh, you know, you, you get that funny look around the eyes. You know, one of the worst problems in, in car dealerships, absolutely, it's, it's one of the worst problems, is customers stealing tools from the shop. In fact, we couldn't figure out, you know, how come uh, every couple of weeks when, when we would take inventory, you know, like $1,000 worth of tools are gone? And uh, it was it's was tremendous. It was just like, it was like the, the garage had sprung a leak, you know, like the stuff was, uh, we couldn't figure out where they were going. And it turns out one day, again, you know, Howie, uh, Huey, rather, was our mechanic, a great mechanic. Huey comes back, and he says, hey, he said, the chef, and I said, yeah. He said, listen, he said, I got a real embarrassing thing. And I said, what? He said, in Dr. Kramer's backseat of this car, he said, to just come in for a grease job, he said, I found Ronnie's wrenches. I said, what? He says, yeah, he said, I found the wrenches. You remember the wrenches that Ronnie was running around yelling about? Somebody stole a set of matched wrenches, you know, for the, the English wrenches. And I said, yeah, the Sheffield wrenches. He says, yeah. He says, they're in the back seat of Kramer's, Dr. Kramer's car. Well, Dr. Kramer was this, you know, elegant gentleman who had, uh, yeah, he bought this, uh, this uh, yeah, he bought an Armstrong Sidley from us. Now, for anybody who knows anything about cars, knows that the Armstrong Sidley is a car for truly elegant people. I mean, it's the kind of car that uh, that guys who are a little bit, you know, too good for the Bentley buy, and so <laughs> that's a fact, you know. So, so here I said, let me see, and so I go in the back, you know, in the back seat of this guy's car, and sure enough, there on the floor, you know, there's a lot of stuff he'd just thrown in the back seat of the car, and there was absolutely without any question, these were Ronnie's wrenches. So what the hell are we gonna do now? He said, well, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to take the wrenches out and put them back in Ronnie's toolbox. <laughs> he said, that's what I'm going to do. <laughs> and, you know, here's the kind of chutzpah these guys have got. I mean, the, the, the real total thief believes that he's, you know, it's his right to do this stuff. I know. What, what is this? It's a strange kind of rational, rationale. So a couple of days later, Kramer comes back to get his car. It was in for a tune-up. See, we were going to put in new plugs and stuff. So a couple of days later, he comes back. He gets his car, and he drives out. And uh, I felt kind of funny about it. It was strange. You know, he comes out. I wondered whether or not the check was going to bounce, you know. And he comes back, and, you know, the distinguished-looking gentleman, you know. He, and, by the way, he was on the school board. So uh, he comes back, and he says, uh, he says, oh, well, he said, uh, uh, I, I hope you guys did well with the car, you know. Oh, Betsy needed a little tune-up. And I said, yes, it did, doctor. It certainly did. Yes, sir. Need a little tune-up. He says, you know, it's funny. I was uh, having a little trouble out there. When I come up Reading Road, I'd feel a little pinging. I hope you guys took care of that. Well, of course we did, Doctor. And he drives out. By God, he wasn't out ten minutes. The phone rings. And it's Dr. Kramer on the phone. He says, he says, somebody stole a set of wrenches out of the back of my car. Now, that's good spot, friend. You'd think that he, you know, I, I figured him wrong. I figured that he would, he'd know. You'd say, somebody stole a set of wrenches out of the back of my car. And I said, the doctor, why, that's surprising, Dr. Kramer. I personally know that nobody was in the back seat of your car. So in other words, you've got to steal it back from them. 
I said, I personally know that. And incidentally, we knew that it was Ronnie's wrenches because Ronnie had scratched his initials on the bottom of the case. So there's no business of, uh, you know, two sets of wrenches. There it was. It was, you know, Ronnie's name on it. So uh, I says, well, gee, doctor, I'll, I'll uh, ask the boys, see if any of them saw it. And uh, would you believe it that for, for weeks after that, this doctor kept calling up, telling us that it was a bunch of, uh, you know, <laughs> a bunch of dishonest crooks down there at the garage. We better find out who it is in the garage that's stealing all these tools. Well, at that point, I, you know, I, I began to be a little disillusioned with stuff like that. And we began to, we hired a mechanic who uh, actually was a detective. And uh, he was also a mechanic, by the way. Happened to be a sports car coco, a real good one. And so within, within 10 days, this guy had the names of like over 100 respectable uh, people. I mean, ranging all the way from school teachers to dentists and stuff who would come back. You know, what they do, they say, hey, listen, I want to go back in the, in the garage. I want to see what the boys are doing on the car. And, of course, they would come back, and they'd stand around looking very official. Well, over 100 of these people had been stealing tools regularly, and I mean all kinds of tools. In fact, the, the final the final one, I mean, if I, if I told you what happened one day in a, in a radio station, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, in, in the, the final theft. I, I, <laughs> I had a friend... I had a friend who worked at a radio station out in in, uh, in Ohio, and I was working in Ohio at the same time. And this guy was the morning man. He would come on at five o'clock in the morning. You know, he was like a small time gambling. You know, he'd come on at five o'clock in the morning and he'd play records until eight and give the time and the temperature and all that jazz. And so one, and I was also on in the morning in Cincinnati. See, so it's about ten minutes after seven, and I get a phone call. And one of my, you know, I'm record is playing. I pick it up, and I said, what's the matter? He says, oh, this is Charlie. I said, yeah? He said, you wouldn't believe it. And I said, what? He says, somebody stole a transmitter last night. I said, what? He said, yeah, I come to work this morning. He said, I was all ready to go on the air. And he says, and all of a sudden, I looked back at me, and he says, there was nothing but big holes in the racks where our 5,000-watt transmitter was. I said, you mean somebody stole the transmitter? He says, that's not all. He says, they stole my, the gate's control board. I said, they stole the control board. He says, and not only that, he says, they took the locker to have my tennis shoes in it. And so, you know, <laughs> after a while, you begin to see, you know, that uh, I believe there's two kinds of people in this world, the totally innocent who will remain forever innocent. And these are the people who always believe that there's a they, a they who are the bad ones, who if somehow we could educate the they or convince the they of the rightness of our view, then life would be forever paradise. That's the total innocent. And then there's the others <laughs> who know what the world is about <laughs> and constantly laugh at people with buttons, you know, peace and thumbs and all the rest of this jazz. Ah, sadness, thy name is Freud. Bring it up big, man. Big. W.O.R. New York, next, Lester Smith and the News. The news in detail on the hour from the W.O.R. Newsroom. In Peking today, for the first time in two months, a public appearance by Communist Party Chairman Mao Zedong. He and visiting Ethiopian Emperor Haile Selassie posed for photographers and then privately conferred in Peking's Hall of the People. Members of Ethiopia's delegation to Red China said that they could not say for certain whether Vice Chairman Lin Piao, Mao's picked successor, was present during today's official meetings. 
It had been speculated that either Mao or Lin were seriously ill, causing a shakeup in the leadership of communist China. Nationalist China's foreign minister told the United Nations General Assembly today that there was every reason to believe that a new and serious power struggle was developing in communist China. Foreign Minister Chao Shu Kai, in arguing against UN admission of communist China, said not counting the rhetoric and the friendly gestures from Peking, there was no evidence that the communist regime intended to pursue a course of action consistent with the UN Charter. Later this month, UN debate begins on admitting mainland China, but the uncertain issue will be whether national...